welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for January 28th to February 3rd. This is your host, Christopher Green, York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor David Baker on the mysterious device known as the psychograph. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more in this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. January 28th. In 1899, the American Social Science Association was incorporated. The organization was a forerunner of the National Institute of Social Science, created in 1926. Also on January 28th, in 1902, Andrew Carnegie endowed the Carnegie Institution with $10 million of U.S. steel stock. The Carnegie Institution was founded to support scientific research, including psychological studies. For January 29th, in 1954, Gordon Allport's book, The Nature of Prejudice, was published. For January 31st, in 1969, Neil E. Miller's article, Learning of Visceral and Glandular Responses, described instrumental conditioning of autonomic responses and was published in the journal Science. For February 1st, in 1800, James Norris, an American Marine, was admitted to Bethlehem Hospital in London. Norris's violent behavior resulted in his being restrained in 1804 by a permanent iron harness, collar, and chain that prevented him from moving farther than a standing posture next to his bed. Norris was discovered in this condition in 1814, and public outcry over the Norris case brought about official inquiry and the reforms of the Madhouse Act of 1828. For February 2nd, in 1859, the New York State Lunatic Asylum for Insane Convicts, the world's first mental hospital for criminal patients, separate from a prison or general hospital, was opened in Auburn, New York. Edward Hall was the hospital's first superintendent. Also for February 2nd, in 1925, American Psychological Association President Madison Bentley appointed Robert M. Yerkes, Paul T. Young, and Edward C. Tolman to the Committee on Precautions in Animal Experimentation, the APA's first body concerned with the treatment of animals used in research. Also on February 2nd, in 1931, Edward L. Thorndike's book, Human Learning, was first published. And finally, an item that is of interest particularly to the history of psychology, on February 2nd, 1965, the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences was first published, with Robert I. Watson as the editor. Watson and psychiatrist Eric T. Carlson promoted the founding of the journal.
January 31st, 1931, was the day that an unusual item called the psychograph made its public debut at the Twin City Auto Show. If you point your browser to the website for this podcast and click on the word picture in the description of today's episode, you will bring up an image of this bizarre contraption. The URL is www.yorku.ca slash Christo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, slash podcasts, with an S at the end. The psychograph was intended to automatically generate a full phrenological reading of the subject in just over one minute. Only a few of these odd devices were manufactured, and one of them now sits in the archives of the history of American psychology at the University of Akron in Ohio. On the line today to talk to us about the psychograph and some other things is Dr. David Baker, the director of the Archives of the History of American Psychology. Professor Baker, could you first please review for us just what phrenology was? All right. Uh, I think probably uh, most people have probably heard of phrenology, and if they haven't heard of phrenology, they've certainly seen the uh, phrenology busts, and those are uh, the uh, porcelain uh, busts of the skull, and they have regions uh, circled on them and described. And uh, phrenology was a 19th century a pseudoscience of uh, telling personality by uh, the contour of the skull. Basically, uh, a phrenologist was someone who could tell you about yourself by feeling the indentations and bumps on your skull. The underlying theory being that uh, the brain was divided into a number of regions of faculties that were associated with uh, each, re each faculty was associated with a region of the brain that if you had a lot of that faculty uh, that would cause your brain to grow more in that area. If you had a deficit, there would be less brain in that area, and that would be reflected uh, structurally uh, by the contour of your skull. Right. So I'm, I've asked our listeners to look at the photograph of the psychograph that is on uh, our website. Actually, that photo came from your website, I should tell them. Um, could you please describe the, this machine for us, explaining what each part does? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic-looking machine. Uh, some people actually may recognize the headpiece of the psychograph. I've been told that it appeared in uh, the movie uh, either Ghostbusters or Back to the Future. Um, but uh, the machine uh, looks kind of like an old-fashioned, uh, some people said like an old-fashioned hair dryer. Uh, but basically, it uh, is a stool. Um, with a headpiece that's mounted to it and a small box that's attached. And what this is, is a, uh, this is uh, an electronic, we refer to it as the electronic phrenology dome. Uh, its uh, correct term is the psychograph. And I would note that that's a psychograph without an H. Mm -hmm. um, basically, this was um, the invention of a fellow named uh, Henry Lavery. He was of Wisconsin, he, uh, he, was, he lived in Wisconsin. Uh, he liked to create gadgets and uh, patent gadgets. Uh, he was a believer, as many, many, many people were uh, in the late 19th century, uh, a true believer in, in phrenology. He thought that uh, the science of phrenology could be uh, more scientific if, uh, if you removed the error associated with different people touching your head, and you had a machine that could uh, reliably uh, and consistently read the contour of someone's skull and produce a phrenology report. And that's what this apparatus did. You would sit on the stool, the headpiece would be lowered, over, fixed uh, over your head and lined up. Uh, and then there were uh, 32 
basically sensors that would uh, uh, define the outline of your skull and based on uh, how much your skull uh, protruded and, and pushed against the sensors that um, corresponded to a reading on a series of rubber stamps that were in the box that would rotate around and a piece of paper was fed through that and your personality profile would appear in about 90 seconds. Really? Just 90 seconds? Mm -hmm. and, and what does the piece of paper that comes out of the box look like? Is it divided up into the different mental categories? or? Yeah, it would have all the, uh, uh, all the frontal regions. Uh, it would have 32 uh, of the uh, uh, phrenology uh, capacities, and you would be assigned a score on each from large to small um, and an interpretation based on those readings. Now, does the one that uh, you have in the uh, archives of the History of American Psychology still work? Is it possible to get readings now? Uh, absolutely. That's one, of the, uh, that's one of the more intriguing things about it. We, uh, there were, at the time, uh, he, he applied for an original patent on these in 1905, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, couldn't raise the money, and, and it wasn't really until uh, about 1933 that he was able to secure the funding to actually produce the psychograph. And in 1933, uh, approximately 45 of these were built. Uh, by then, of course, phrenology, phrenology's heyday was over. Uh, there had been other uh, newer technologies, uh, a rising kind of uh, market of psychotherapy and, and a science of psychology that offered vocational guidance and other things that phrenology had purported to do. Um, and the psychograph was uh, relegated uh, basically kind of as a, as a sideshow attraction. These mostly found their way into uh, movie theaters and other attractions where you would insert a, a coin and you'd get your reading. Now this machine came to us uh, from a historian of science, Gunter Rees. And in fact, uh, he had written a, uh, an article in the Journal of the History of Behavioral Sciences in 1976 about uh, phrenology and specifically about the psychograph. Uh, through some friends, uh, we were put in touch with Dr. Reese and uh, he was kind enough to donate uh, the psychograph to us. When it came here uh, a couple of years ago to the archives, uh, we had the good fortune of bringing over some of our colleagues from uh, mechanical and electrical engineering. They were fascinated with it. Long story short is that uh, with some of our staff and with our colleagues in electrical and mechanical engineering, the machine has been revived. So uh, if you're to travel to the archives of the History of American Psychology, you too can get a psychograph reading. Well, that's great. Now, the collection you manage there at the archives in, uh, at the University of Akron in Ohio um, includes a large array of artifacts from psychology's past, including the psychograph. Um, could you briefly tell us about some of the other interesting items in your holdings? We have over a th over a thousand, probably now close to twelve hundred uh, objects, uh, largely apparatus and equipment. Uh, they're 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 all interesting. They're all fascinating. They all tell uh, kind of a, a, a serve kind of as the material culture uh, of the history of the science and practice of psychology. I think the big some of the the the, the big ticket items, as I call them, that uh, people are always fascinated to see course would be uh, the simulated shock generator used by Stanley Milgram in his famous studies of obedience and conformity. 
and uh, that certainly has a very prominent place in a glass case in a reading room. And I think one of the things that's interesting, I always like to see people's reaction, because of course many people have, have heard uh, uh, of Milgram's studies, have seen the, the famous films, and uh, it's, it's quite something to see the artifact in person. And I think what would impress people about that is, uh, and it was my first reaction too, is the, this kind of stuff. It's actually quite imposing, and it's uh, very large, and uh, really does give uh, an aura uh, of scientific legitimacy. And and it's interesting, as an aside, uh, we did some, we, we, we pulled a lot of Milgram's original reports, some of his, his early grant applications to study obedience and conformity. And in some of the earlier studies, when he was first um, kind of uh, tinkering around and trying to decide best how to approach this, he had built initially a much smaller box. And uh, it was used in conjunction at first uh, with uh, Yale undergraduates and seemed to have not, uh, there seemed to be some indication that uh, either the nature of the student population or the smaller size of the box um, made it seem less legitimate to the subjects. Really? So the, yeah, so this box itself is, uh, is quite large and uh, so I think that's an interesting impression people have. Alongside that we also have um, uh, materials from uh, Phil Zimbardo, from the Stanford prison experiment. So we have a prison door, we have some prison uniforms, uh, and those are wonderful artifacts as well that, that will help uh, kind of enliven um, and make much more real uh, the story and the impact of uh, the Stanford prison experiment. Mm -hmm. Another recent acquisition was the from Norma Sperry, the widow of Roger Sperry. And she sent us uh, the material uh, from uh, Sperry's split brain lab at Caltech. Uh, obviously work for which uh, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. And what does that consist in? Um, it's got, it, well, the, the, one of the main features that I find most interesting, and I think you see reproduced in journals, is there is a tachistoscope and a screen. And uh, this was what he would use to present visual images to the right and left hemispheres of split brain patients. And then they would, while they were simultaneously seeing an image on the screen, would be feeling objects um, underneath. And then there's all of the assorted testing materials that went with that to test a variety of, of cognitive and perceptual functions. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll make a wonderful display at some point. Um, you also have one of uh, B.F. Skinner's famous baby boxes, don't you? Yes, uh, an air crib, uh, a Skinner air crib. Not the original. Um, there was an original that appeared in uh, some of his early popular, there was some popular press coverage of the uh, of his air crib. Uh, this was, uh, the, the version that we have was a later model that was a, uh, a business venture, a failed business venture that uh, B.F. Skinner had with a businessman in New Jersey. Uh, where they created, I think, approximately about 500. The plan was to produce about 500 of these air cribs. Uh, the model that we have was a working model. was given to us by a donor who uh, who used the air crib. And in fact, we've had a number of visitors who have uh, had experiences with the air cribs and all uniformly positive. Well, thank you very much for this today. We've been speaking with Dr. David Baker of the University of Akron. Uh, Professor Baker is the director of the Archives of the History of American Psychology. I have to apologize for that distortion you heard near the end of the interview. This is just one of the things that happens when you're trying to uh, record uh, via telephone. I hope you were able to make it all out. Now, the Archives of the History of American Psychology has a fabulous website. If you'd like to have a look at it, you can find it at 
www.uacron.edu slash A-H-A-P. You will find that they have uh, not only uh, finding aids for much of their documentary archival material, but also photographs of a lot of the equipment that um, Professor Baker was talking to us about uh, during the interview. If you're interested in the article that Professor Baker mentioned during the interview, it is by Gunter Rees, that's R-I-E-S-S, and it was called Vocational Guidance During the Depression, Phrenology versus Applied Psychology, and that was in the 1976 volume of the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences. If you're interested in phrenology uh, more generally, you have to go to the site that was assembled by John Van Wye, um, and it is called The History of Phrenology on the Web, and you can find that at pages.britishlibrary, all one word, dot net slash phrenology. Now, John Van Wye also recently published one of the best books on phrenology that's out there. Um, his last name is spelled uh, Van, V-A-N, space, W-Y-H-E, and the book is called Phrenology and the Origins of Victorian Scientific Naturalism, and it was published in 2004 by Ashgate. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for January 28th. In 1866, Carl Emil Seashore was born. Seashore founded the second psychological clinic in the United States and helped to found the Iowa Child Welfare Research Station. His studies centered on educational psychology and the psychology of music and art. Also on January 28, in 1932, Florence L. Denmark was born. Denmark was a leader in research and the teaching of psychology of women and was a founder of the American Psychological Association Division 35 for the psychology of women. She was American Psychological Association president in 1980. For January 30th. In 1863, Joseph Jastrow was born. Jastrow earned the first doctorate from the first formal PhD program in the United States at Johns Hopkins University, officially under the supervision of G. Stanley Hall, although most of the supervision was actually done by Charles Sanders Peirce before his dismissal from Johns Hopkins. Uh, he received his PhD in 1886. Jastrow's writing presented a scientific view of psychology to the general public, and he organized the Psychology Pavilion at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. He was American psychologist. Association president in 1900. For February 1st, in 1844, Granville Stanley Hall was born. Hall founded the American Journal of Psychology in 1887, Pedagogical Seminary in 1891. Hall also, of course, founded the American Psychological Association in 1892, and Hall was the man who, as president of Clark University, invited Sigmund Freud on his only trip to North America, where he gave a series of lectures in 1909 that were ultimately published as The Origin and Development of Psychoanalysis. Hall's research interest was in child development, and he was American Psychological Association president twice in 1892 and in 1924. For February 2nd, in 1859, Henry Havelock Ellis was born. Ellis wrote some of the first objective works on human sexual behavior. He introduced the terms autoeroticism and narcissism. Also on February 2nd, in 1903, Carl Dunker was born. Dunker studied apparent movement, creativity, and problem solving. He originated the term functional fixity, denoting a common barrier to creative problem solving. 
And on February 3rd, in 1920, George A. Miller was born. Miller's influential work in language and cognition, short-term memory, and literacy education has shaped the field of psycholinguistics and cognitive psychology. He was American Psychological Association president in 1969. Also on February 3rd, in 1921, Robert Perloff was born. Perloff's interests have been in industrial organizational psychology, business administration, consumer behavior, and in the motivational aspects of self-interest versus altruism. He was American Psychological Association president in 1985. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at York U, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 